Welcome to Coming Out Evil. I'm Harley Honey. And I'm Mick Sedusa. Join our descent into villainy. Wowie. Exciting. <laughs> Hello. We're recording our podcast. We sure are. Exciting. Okay. So, I kind of wanted to just jump into it honestly why coming out evil what is that supposed to mean so yeah let's just start with uh talking about what we mean by being femme and being villainous though before that i really want to take some time to acknowledge our perspectives like where we're at as Mm. people and how that can lead to failings and in our discussion and missing pieces i want to really take the time to acknowledge that first. Per. Do you want to speak on that a little bit? Yeah, I think it's interesting, right? Like, especially, you know, I'm in a lot of radical spaces, a lot of leftist spaces, and we talk about the ways we're oppressed a lot. And it's really easy, I think, to talk about the ways we're oppressed and how to fight it. But something I had to have pointed out to me when I was like, how do we get people to understand privilege? The man who answered was like, well, you you say what your privileges are first and acknowledge that, right? And kind of humble yourself in that moment and that can help somebody who hasn't had to think about that realize what their ignorances may be, right? And things they don't have to consider. So I'm black, but I'm also light-skinned, right? Like things Mm -hmm. like that, where it's like, I am oppressed in this way, yes. And there's still a way I hold privilege here, so. Right, I, I think you touched on that perfectly. I think personally, I know that I'm immersed in western culture even Mm. though that's much to my chagrin right (laughs) Um, it's just the case that that's the perspective i have that's the language that i'm going to use we're having all of these discussions in english for starters so that's already limiting language wise for you know gender sexuality stuff as much as we can try to acknowledge like alternative or like different frameworks for gender and sexuality abroad we really can only work within the one that we know absolutely so yeah western specifically american that's where i'm coming from and i'm also an unambiguously black person i move through the world with not quite the same plight as a a dark-skinned woman and Mm. i feel uncomfortable claiming that i do because that just feels a little delusional but you're also definitely not light-skinned right i'm certainly not (laughs) light-skinned i'm definitely unambiguously black though i think that i'm the shade of black that is you know the model for the ebony brands you know like i'm the shade of black that you see on posters on billboards for like maybelline and stuff like that i'm that shade of black which is you know, I think a privilege. Like I've seen myself in media less so than other people for sure. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Okay, next we need to move on to some definitions. Mm -hmm. Right, so we gotta define them. (laughs) Whoa. I have some stuff written here in our notes about like the historical kind of history of the word. I can start speaking on that and yeah you you can jump in because i know you've got some expertise in this oh expertise and opinions i'm ready to go (laughs) awesome so bare bones of it the no nuance of it is that femme kind of exists in not opposition to butch but as Mm. butch's natural foil right Mm. so butch that term originated in the 1890s and was referring to a female butcher. Oh. Yeah, so that kind of being the origin of the word, like, 
the natural antithesis became femmes. But the thing is that Mm -hmm. the perspective on femmes was different at the time. So I have this quote from Michelle Gibson in Femme slash Butch New Considerations of the Way We Want to Go. I don't endorse this entire book because I did not read (laughs) the entire book. But I do like how she kind of summed up the way that femmes were seen. Yeah. Right. So she says lesbians were slower to focus on the femme as a lesbian, Mm. originally seeing her only as the pick of women whom the average man would pass by, a womanly woman who settled for a female lover for lack of anything better. Ouch. Yeah. Ooh. <laughs> and the thing is that I still feel like you can feel that even in modern femphobia, yeah. right? It goes all the way back to that because that's where it started. That is absolutely wild. Yeah. I really appreciate you finding that because, one, the butcher, I mean, that, that makes sense now that you're mm-hmm. saying it, but I would have never connected that. And then, two, just from Jump. They were like, yeah, femmes are, they're here, but they're not. Like, yeah. they're not, they're not in it like we are. Like, they're not really the sapphics, like, we're the sapphics. Uh, what? <laughs> and it's just so believable because I feel like I've heard that sentiment before. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have any other thoughts on that? Yeah, it's interesting. What immediately comes to mind is this essay I read back when I was in school, actually for a woman in gender studies degree. And the essay was called Feminine Visibility by Laini Madhubadi. And I read it and it's just always stuck with me. There's a quote here. I knew I loved women. I just felt like I didn't look like I loved them. I, an unapologetic feminist, hadn't left the sexism built into hetero roles just to get locked into some gay version of the same thing. Right? And that's exactly what this is. And that's the thing about femme, right? A lot of people, when they think femme, they think, oh, lipstick lesbian, which is actually really reductive because femme doesn't show up in one way, right? So that's that's one thing. There's A lot of people have a very rigid idea of what femme even looks like, but there are many different types of femme, including mm-hmm. stone femme, hard femme, mm-hmm. butch femme. Like, there's so many different types. But people have this idea that femme means lipstick. Femme means hair is flowing a certain way. Like... It means heels, it means skirts, right? And that anybody who does subscribe to that rigid idea of femme is doing it for the male gaze or because they're like into binary gender things or whatever, right? Like that it's not a liberated choice, right? Right. That the power is coming from somewhere other than the male gaze, but it's like, I'm gonna be so inherently feminine that you can't attribute my power to anything else but the fact that I am feminine to the point it's queer, that it's femme, right? So. Yeah, just really getting people to rewire the way they consider that and that there's agency there, right, is really hard to get across to some people. Yeah, and bouncing off of that, I think that reminds me a lot of, like, the kind of baby sapphics, which feels wild to say because I'm only 23, (laughs) right? But there are sapphics younger than me, right? But the, the baby sapphics who have in the past said that Right, that femme for femme is inherently transphobic or things like that. Like those takes that kind of ignore the the history of the word and also the meaning of the word, right? The idea that, the argument that I've heard is that being femme for femme means that you want someone gender conforming, like not realizing how expansive femme is and how like political femme is also is that not inherently transphobic to say trans people can't be femme like 
Right. What? Like, that doesn't even make... Like, you're the transphobic one. Right? Like, Honestly, anyone can be femme. Yeah. And, like, the fact that you're so rigid in these ideas that you think somebody... One, the fact that you're assuming that trans people who are transitioning, right, like, into femininity or into feminist are going to have certain features that would disqualify them. Right. right? A wild assumption to start with. And then for two, just, like, literally anybody can be femme. Like, it doesn't look one certain way. Like... Femme can be any gender. Literally. Femme Literally. expansive. Femme can be a gender. Honestly, I think that's a good segue to mm. start talking about uh, something else that I found in, in that same book that I got that quote from is this idea of the lesbian queer gender. And I oh. feel like, yeah, I didn't get to actually read the section on it because the book isn't available online yeah but i think that the idea of the lesbian queer or the femme or the butch Mm. or you know us lesbian queers that being a part of our gender shaping our gender i think that makes a lot of sense to me because i do think that femme is a part of my gender and a part of my sexuality i am i am femme for femme and that has everything to do with both my sexuality and my gender very true and also it makes me think of my dear friend who is here in our city and she's talked about how she's a political lesbian right Mm -hmm. and so how that's affected the way she moves politically which the political is personal right so but the fact that not only does she love women and like not only does she love these people and have sex with them but also the way she moves to make sure that they're safe and the way she invests in them and like everything is shaped by like what people imagine is just a sexuality but it, it goes so much deeper for a lot of people like to yeah. gender to politics to all those things exactly them them is a, a political gender i think that it's it's radical mm. especially since femphobia is a thing that exists yeah. right society is just rife with hate for us literally i don't know if anybody has tried to argue it doesn't but you can look no further than like tinder profiles or like dating profiles and people saying no femmes like people will name that without shame that they don't want femmes and like if we've seen in like mlm communities and gay men and like talking about how them being too femme or flamboyant or you know too whatever right like sugar in the tank yeah exactly like people will be turned off by that and will literally say i don't date femmes i don't date anybody who's too out too queer right and that's rooted in femme phobia like hello even if they're not femme right like it's just literally if you act too much like what people imagine is somebody like this right is just it's too much for them it's just like wow like it runs deep it does it runs deep and just far back into our queer history. I have another section from something that I read while I was researching for this episode from Karen L. Blair, The Experiences of Femme Identity Coming Out, Invisibility and Femphobia. So you talked specifically about invisibility, right? Specific emphasis was placed on the process of self-identifying as femme. And this is her talking about her interviewing people who identified as femme, Mm. who said they were femmes. Gotcha. As opposed to being categorized as femme on the basis of gender expression, processes of femme identity development that were largely shaped by the prevalence of masculine privileging within queer communities and related experiences of discrimination based on their femme identity or femme phobia. 
Femme identity is not limited to individuals in exclusively butch femme relationships or communities and that there is an important element of agency and self-actualization associated with femme identity. So I thought that this section was interesting, not because I completely agree with every single thing in it, right? but I really like the distinction between self-identifying as femme and the focus being on your self-identification and being perceived as a femme based on what you look like that's a huge tension i've actually seen where people will assume somebody's femme invite them to a space or a group chat not thinking to ask right they'll be like oh this person looks like my idea of femme whatever that looks like big titties lipstick whatever right and then they have to be like i actually don't identify as femme and people are like oh awkward like right but that's the thing about femme not only looking so many different ways, but that it's a matter of agency, right? Mm-hmm. You cannot look at somebody and assume they're femme. And also the fact that femme isn't based in just gender expression, right? Because if that were true, then cishet people could be femme, which is not the case because mm-hmm. it's for queer people. It's for this act of reclaiming something that was taken from us through misogyny and taken from us through homophobia, right? So it's not just gender expression or else anybody could be femme, but it's inherently queer because of all these things that are layered into it right i think i agree with you completely there and jumping off of that there's also the idea that sapphic relationships look like a butch and a femme yeah and so often some people conceptualize femme as Mm. as just the foil for a butch so the fact that femme is being reclaimed as something that can stand on its own I think sometimes makes people uncomfortable. Like the idea that a femme and a femme can be together and there's no butch in sight, right? There's just the femmes. It's interesting for how so many queer people, right? They have trauma with Christianity and religion, right? But that in Christian mythology, right? (laughs) Like in in their storytelling, the book of Genesis talks about how a woman came from the room of a man, right? Like from the first page, womanhood is seen as an afterthought or a byproduct of the man and yet somehow we have replicated that in queer community right like you were just saying like it is still seen as a response to or a foil to the butch or like as a way to attract the butch or whatever right but that's not even the case like how many times are we going to create these binaries and the same mythology behind it before we realize like it's just there's power in it in itself yeah it feels like people are just really attached to the whole masculine feminine combo and it's just not necessary truly also i do think that it's interesting how we're again reconceptualizing femme like the quote-unquote modern femme is not the same as our historical counterparts right because we exist without butches and this is not to say that i'm not trying to disparage like historical femmes it's the perception right is that we are loudly and vocally and on purpose saying we exist without butches yeah and i think that's really important i think it's interesting too thing about being femme i think people don't realize is that while femme it is a response in a lot of ways right like as many reclamations are but it's in a response that's conditional to the set of conditions we're in right like if we lived in a different planet right and it was like people who liked wearing pants or like being masked were the ones who were being oppressed or the ones being silenced or the one not being seen as like x y and z right there would 
be a reclamation of sorts that would come from that. And to say that wouldn't be named femme, right? Like femme is really a placeholder word for the act of reclaiming this marginalized way to be and like stepping into that and claiming power in it, right? So it's like, while it is a response, right? It's it's more than that because it, it could have been anything. It doesn't have to be the feminine, right? It doesn't have to be things associated with that. That's just what happened in this set of circumstances in this society. But it's much deeper than that. It would have always existed. And I, I think that's like a compli- like even finding the words for that was a little tricky, right? But there's always going to be this kind of way of, that people will fight back and reclaim a thing that's being silenced and oppressed and looked down upon as lesser than, you know, even in, within marginalized spaces that are supposedly fighting back against oppressive forces against them, like still recreating these systems, right? So it is a response in some ways, right? But it's it's also bigger than that. Right. And I think that ties into, again, the femme is political. Femme yeah. is a political identity. It's a radical identity. It's not just about what you look like. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think that's a good thesis for that Perk. conversation. <laughs> I imagine a little jazz interlude do, here do, do, as I, I pop do, in and I'm like, do, alrighty, do. let's... <laughs> <laughs> Alrighty, <laughs> let's talk about how we define villainy. Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I think embracing villainy is about feeling comfortable yes. with the idea of being seen as a villain. Mm. Right, so not necessarily on some take over the world shit. Right, I mean, you know. Uh, but, no. <laughs> <laughs> but more on some... I don't care what you think shit. Right. So I think that what makes me villainous is I love the word no. I love it. I love (laughs) no. I love I don't want to. Mm. I love I don't care. They're all just my favorite phrases. And so learning to say all those things and really step into them and feel comfortable and confident, like saying those words as a femme, villainy. Yes. (laughs) I'm so obsessed with that. And I I don't know if in your research you're able to find, like, maybe when this reclamation of villainy... Because I feel like it's happened recently, right? Like, people... Honestly, I feel like it's so recent that I couldn't really find anything about it. Yeah, I'm so glad this podcast and space exists. Because, like, we've seen how villains have been queer-coded, right? Like, all our childhood. So a lot of queer people already relate to villainy, right? But then even more so recently, we're getting, like villain live action remix that's telling their side of the story that's usually a response to trauma read maleficent baddest bitch alive but like people being able to relate to especially as marginalized people that there's something really powerful in that and both the fact that they've been queer coded and being like okay you coded as queer to show us that it was bad but forget that and then also as people who've been traumatized recognizing like no like i'm doing these things and it's not unjustified right like maleficent is an excellent example because she literally was violated like her whole body was violated and she didn't even do anything then but she kept getting disrespected by the king and queen so much so she was shunned in social situations that were just a complete faux pas on the royals and the fairies part and they would not be humble about it and you have this traumatized woman who was supposed to be invited getting shirt and then she came and was still willing to forgive it and then they kept fumbling the bag and she's like here's some 
motherfucking consequences. Like, you know, so it's consequences. It's really what it is, is what villainy is allowing us to do is to give consequences for bestowing this trauma on us. It's like, okay, if you're going to give us a lifetime of trauma and you're going to violate our bodies and you're going to tell us all these things, there's going to be consequences, right? Yeah, I just love Maleficent so much. I forgot <laughs> what the original point was. Yeah, so all that to say, it's happened recently, right, where we've seen this uptick in villains. And I literally, on Disney the other day, they posted a short about Lisa Simpson wanting to become a Disney princess. And then she actually meets all the villains and learns that it might be better to be a villain. It's gotten so big that now Disney and the Simpsons and big network media presences are getting in on this. So I'm just curious. I would love to find out where this started or like who maybe kickstarted or if it was all just like a collective thing we did together, right? But it's been major. It's it's just been so big and I'm so excited for it. It's a little moment. <laughs> yeah, I'm excited too. Especially because of the kind of second facet of villainy that we haven't touched on yet is the radical selfishness Ooh. right and specifically selfishness as in prioritizing yourself and your own mm. right your community yeah and i think that being radically self-centered and selfish is actually conducive to community care absolutely read magneto that was Magneto's whole thing. Her. Like literally, I've people, this might be common knowledge, but in case you don't know, the X-Men series started as kind of Stanley's observation of the philosophies of Martin Luther King as Professor X. Oh, I and didn't know that. The philosophies of Malcolm X as Magneto. So Professor X, who's kind of taking the liberal approach, trying to, here's a school, we're gonna like fit in, we're gonna like do good for the community. And they have Magneto who's like, y'all do not mess with us. Y'all keep violating us. And there's gonna be consequences, right? Which is why my brother actually has a Magneto tattoo, right? Because it, it resonates so deeply. Honestly, wow, he might be one of my first inspirations as far as reclaiming villainy. Like hearing about him getting that tattoo, I was like, huh, what a neat concept, right? Like the fact that we can identify with villains so much and that they're not really all that wrong usually, right? Yeah, the, I, it's a trope at this point, yeah. right? The sympathetic villain and then they have to throw in them doing something randomly inhumane to justify them being a villain. It's the Hayes Code. The what? The Hayes Code. Oh my goodness. Okay. So the <laughs> Hayes Code is actually why queer coding villains started. So something that started in um, movies, I believe circa 1930. But basically, if you have somebody doing something morally wrong, that they couldn't end up sympathetic in the end, or it would go so far as saying they couldn't live. So they would, if there was a queer person, they had to be so obviously evil, right? Or they had to die. And like, that was a way to censor movies. And so that has been adopted now even into queer coding villains. So oh, yeah, it's that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, so now, right? So now we have like, a great example has been Killmonger and Black Panther, right? Like a lot of people were like, oh yeah, yeah, he's right, yeah. That's, and then, what, that's who I had yeah. in mind. And he literally had to just randomly beat up like this innocent woman Why and like kill his that? girlfriend. And it's like, Why but he was right, right? But they couldn't make him too sympathetic because of Hayes Code. Like it, it's something that has rippled into all of our media to this day, even though I don't think it, I don't think it was ever like a law necessarily. And it's not something that is even enforced anymore. But it's there. Like, it is looming over our media, like, constantly. Uh, the looming specter of the Hayes Code. On, literally? Like... Wow. Well, I think that the fact 
that these villains generally do have focus on community care is what draws me personally yeah. to them, right? Like, Killmonger is who I had in mind when I was like, dang, like, that nigga was right. That's true. Until he wasn't. <laughs> right. But the thing is that the embracing villainy being radical is because, like, community care that's sustainable is a natural byproduct of centering yourself and taking care of yourself. Yeah. Everybody wants to say don't pour from an empty cup right to give from your excess but then nobody's protecting the cup right and villainy is how you protect the cup (laughs) yes yes protect your cup with villainy per like and it, it just we cannot give healing and resources to other people if we're at a deficit because it's gonna make us bitter and resentful and it's gonna lead to longer term problems we have to watch for ourselves and then give from our excess first like that's the only sustainable way to do community care and it sucks. It sucks because everybody everybody says don't pour from an empty cup until you're saying no all the time. So you're saying no all the time and they're like, yo, why is your cup empty? And they're mad at you for your hands being empty. And it's like, I, which is it? Right. Which is it, actually? Like. And I think that, is it okay if we jump into an explanation of why embracing villainy is going to lead to that natural byproduct of sustainable community care. Basically, I have like three flows, I feel like. Mm. So the freedom to say no is my first thing. And this is like my own personal like Mm. concept of this. So I think the freedom to say no directly leads to more honesty and communication. Mm. So if you and the person you're talking to, and this is just like linguistically, like that's what language is for is so to facilitate communication and language is most effective when everybody is on the same page. So if you and I both know that neither of us has an issue with the word no, then I'm going to believe you when you say yes. Right. Right. And I'm going to take your yes seriously and you're going to take your yes seriously. True. So that freedom of no leading to honesty and communication directly creates more sustainable environments because it builds trust. Right. Do you have any thoughts on that at all? Yeah, I love that. Where it's like you being able to say no means you can believe my yes, which I think a lot of people don't understand. Right. It's like I'm also a big believer in under promising too. Right. So. I don't want to say yes, right, and it not go the way I think it will, and then I'm left more burnt out and left resentful, right? Like, I would rather preemptively say no and then plug in where I can or be like, no, I can't do that. Here's what I can do instead. Or, no, I can't do that, but let's check in in 30 minutes, right? Like, it gives you so much freedom to fine-tune exactly what you need to show up exactly how you want to, right? Because if you say yes and over-deliver and over-promise and then you're left burnt out, and then that's when like reactionary things happen. That's when outbursts happen. That's when fatigue happens, right? So yeah, the freedom to say no is so major. And it, it does lead to that honesty and communication. And having those safe people be able to hear your no's and believe your yeses is major. It's such such a game changer. Like all my closest friends, that's the dynamic we have because that's how important it is. It's a fire dynamic. It's pristine. Excellent. Excellent in a good way. (laughs) (laughs) So there's the freedom of no. There's the freedom not to forgive. Ooh. Ooh, they're not ready for that one. (laughs) (laughs) I think it should be totally and completely acceptable to choose not to forgive someone. Because 
the expectation of forgiveness, I so often in my work and my normie work has been in mental health. So I've seen this myself play out is people will decide that they must be on this healing journey. And so they put forgiveness on their healing journey and they say, I need to forgive all of my abusers to let go. And it's like, not the case. You can choose to not give a fuck about them and who they are. Literally, I just found this quote today and I was so excited to find it. But forgiveness is a very Christian concept. Accountability is different than forgiveness. Justice is different than forgiveness. Forgiveness is a feeling, but accountability and reparations are observable and often tangible by Janelle Scales. And that, that is exactly it. Like, why am I fighting to have this feeling I just do not have? Right? Because you haven't done anything to make me tangibly feel safer, to tangibly feel like it's going to change, whether between me and you or between me and the next person, right? Like, you have not restored my faith in humanity to some degree. Like, I'm going to be mad about that right. until I get some tangible consequences, some tangible accountability, reparations, justice, whatever that looks like. Right. And I think that that is what really prioritizes the victim in a situation that's what really keeps them safe is to not put any expectations upon them and it goes back to the honest no right so if somebody were to say like hey i'm so sorry i did this do you forgive me i'm not going to say yes if i don't i'm going to say no i don't forgive you and here's why like it it all comes back to that honest no like i i cannot forgive you unless i actually have the freedom to forgive you you cannot ask for forgiveness and expect me to say yes just because you asked that's not actually forgiveness, right? Like, that's that's coercion. Like, right. that's not what we're looking for here. And this, uh, jumping into the third thing, I think kind of addresses that is, I think that people might be left with the question like, okay, but what about that person who enacted the harm? What about them, right? The victim doesn't need to care about them, but maybe the community does yeah. as a whole. So what about that? And I think villainy comes in and plugs in real great too because that person also has a right to be selfish in working on themselves absolutely right so that person can choose to not care whether or not you forgave them for what they did because it's not about whether the person who they hurt forgave them and freeing yourself from needing to have specifically the forgiveness of that person yeah. frees you up to actually doing the work to avoid whatever the fuck up was in the first place. True. And honestly, I think back to when I was a camp counselor and we did training videos, right? I mean, one of the concepts was if a kid has done something, right? They've hurt another kid, they were acting out, they were mean to a counselor, whatever. Sitting them down and like saying, hey, there's gonna be consequences for this, right? Like not saying that they don't get in trouble necessarily, but focusing more on what do you need so this doesn't happen again? And I have held on to that so much, and that's literally how I view community care at this point, right? So the person who's been hurt, at that point, they focus on them, they focus on their healing, per radical self-care. The person who caused the hurt, the community then steps in and is like, what do you need to not do this again? Were you too burnt out? Were you too worried about money? Were you saying too many yeses when you should have said no, right? Were you not able to say your honest no? Whatever it is, whatever your circumstances are, what do you need to not cause this hurt again? And that's the only way it works, right? Because so many people like just dispose of people, right? And like the person who's been hurt, they can say no more, like they're out of my life, right? But the, as the community, if we don't ask those questions, like what do you need to not cause this hurt again? 
They're just going to go to another community and keep replicating that harm. Exactly. Somebody has to intervene. And that means the community has to be able to take care of themselves and not get activated when they're not the one who's being directly hurt. They have to be able to be like, oh, I'm not the focus here because I took care of myself. I healed myself. I chose me. I can now step out of that and be like, what do you need to not have this happen again? Because I'm not the one being affected in this scenario now. Right. Exactly. And I think that th- those three things, like, that's like my magic three Peak. things, right? <laughs> freedom to say no, right? The freedom to not forgive, the freedom to be selfish. Yeah, the honesty and communication. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, uh, musical interlude. <laughs> I'm kind of imagining that we connect all the ideas that have been floating around. And I see villainy through a lens of people-pleasing recovery for myself personally, Mm. right? So I flash back like five or six years, had a rampant people-pleasing problem, and it got me into a lot of situations I didn't want to be in because I was just chasing, making everybody happy but myself. Yeah. And so I see villainy as an opposite action. And if you're familiar with DBT at all, like, you know, an opposite action is responding to whatever has activated you with the opposite of what it's activated you to do. Right. And DBT being dialectical behavioral therapy. Right. Exactly. Thanks for mentioning that. So the like the idea of activation also versus a trigger. I just want to touch on that real quick. Mm. Like a trigger is kind of just general, like any kind of activation Mm. is a kind of being triggered, right? But when I say the word activation, I'm trying to be a little more concise in that activation can refer to to things that are negative, positive, and neutral, Mm. right? So me being hungry activates me to eat. Me being thirsty activates me to drink. But me being angry might activate me to yell, but anger is not an emotion that I'm trying to have stick around. Right. So knowing that, I know I need to engage in an opposite action, and that opposite action can be, right, instead of yelling, I could take some space and go sing something for myself, right? So things like that, or if I just generally am feeling the urge to be mean, then the opposite action is like, I'm going to go be kind to myself. Right, right. Or be kind to someone else. Right. Right. So those kinds of things. And so I think that I want to apply a DBT lens to villainy, right? And that it is the opposite action to people pleasing. When I feel activated to over apologize, right, or to do anything like that, I I try and step back and I'm like, if I am my own number one and I'm my number one priority, how would I move if that was the case? Yeah. And I do that instead. You know? And that's so good. I love that. Especially because DBT, as somebody with BPD who gets recommended that a lot, BPD and cluster B in general gets villainized. It gets so deeply stigmatized, even with people saying mental health matters, disability justice matters, all of that, right? Cluster B disorders or disorders that are not just chemical imbalances, right, but personality behavioral things Mm -hmm. that are oftentimes a response to not just a one-time traumatic event, but compounded trauma, and especially in early childhood, right? So it's, it's deeply affecting us, right? Like, it's very... Horrible things happened to us from such an early age and they kept happening. And yet the way that our body responds to that gets villainized, right? So it's like, okay, well, if I were a villain, how would I move? Okay, then, right? But not in a way that's like 
spiteful or that looks to harm other people but it's like taking that power back and being like actually no like i'm i'm self-reflecting and i'm being proactive right and that's that's villainy to me like not stigmatizing mental illness (laughs) exactly speak on it (laughs) so by the way on our website we're going to have all of the sources that we used for this episode you can feel free to go check that out and it'll include a list of dbt tools and specifically a section on opposite action in case you're curious about like the other applications of opposite action because i'm not a fan of dbt in general but particular dbt skills like that can be i think really helpful fair so yeah yeah so i actually have never heard of the term opposite action before looking through your notes before this podcast right um and something i've been realizing a lot is that shame shows up a lot in my life Right? It showed up a lot when I was in abusive relationships. I was like, oh, I should be showing up more. I need to be working harder. I need to get more money for us, even though they weren't contributing, right? But I would feel so much shame about how little I was showing up in my disabled body and all these things. And even though I was going to school full time, right? And there was no need for it. And even now, my friend had a very serious conversation with me because I kept using the term hyper accountability, right? And she's like, that's shame, actually. You're not being accountable, right? Accountability and shame are not the same thing, actually. They're not even compatible. They're not even compatible, right? But what I would call hyper accountability, I was like, yeah, I'm taking on too much accountability. I'm apologizing too much. I'm like, right, that's not accountability. That's shame. And I was like, wow, that's a good point. And that's, uh, right, that's hard because our society does treat accountability like shame a lot. Where it's like, I feel so ashamed. I'm so sorry. And people see that as accountability. And that's just not it, right? So there's that. But then also the fact that recognizing that that's shame, how would I react in an opposite way? If somebody does something and I'm like, oh, I feel bad about the role I played in this. It's like, one, did I even have a role to play, especially when it was abuse done to me? Check the facts. Yeah, and that's what I was talking about, right? Like, we were talking about abusive situations I was in, and I was like, oh, I'm hyper accountable to, like, the role I played in it and, like, missing these red flags and not trusting my gut. And she's like, that's shame. That's not accountability. And I was like, oh, I'm feeling shame for the abuse caused to me. How does that work, right? So if I were to respond the opposite way, it's like, I had no role in this. Like, I am really proud of myself for doing the best I could with what I had, right? So the opposite of shame would be pride, right? So right, yeah. I think that that is something that goes along with high self-esteem, yeah. right? So yeah. Also, I, on a more micro level, and I'm sure lots of people have heard this before, but the whole, instead of saying sorry, say thank you. Yes, I love that one. It's so major as an over-apologizer. Oh. Yes, I love it. I use it all the time. I My most popular one is thanking people for their patience because I feel a lot of shame for moving slowly sometimes. Mm. And I know that. So instead of saying, like, sorry, I'm going so slow, I say thank you for being patient with me. And it just changes the game. I have a little section on like some further implications, like the way that in like an academic paper, you know, the things that like didn't fit in the flow of the rest of the conversation, right? I wanted to talk a little bit about the kind of combination of femme and fat, Mm. Uh, just like touch on it briefly because we are two fat femmes. Yes. And I think that that's important and does shape our perspective. Majorly. I have a quote that's excerpted from a writing by Allison Taylor called Flabulously Femme. Excellent. (laughs) 
queer fat femme women's identities and experiences. I don't love her use of femme women's identities. That's a little odd, but you know, we pull from places we don't have to agree with like every single thing in an article, which is again why I want to reiterate, I don't endorse everything in the articles that we mention, I endorse the things that we say about them. Her. Okay, so she says, the role of femme in fat queers reclaiming femininities, the masculinizing and or feminizing effects of fatness for queer femmes, the mutual constitution of fat phobia and femme phobia, femme faction, fat femme invisibility, and mm. the importance of intersectional concepts of queer fat femininities. That was a lot of words. So, oh, that's heavy. Yeah, that was a lot of words. I'm really interested to hear your thoughts on any of them. Yeah, I think as fat femmes, it's so hard to show up as femme and be seen as femme and be taken seriously as femme. And even harder when we have less clothing options. Like, down to the fashion that's available to us. Down to the little cute boutique Instagram lingerie stores that only go up to a size L, right? Like... So for me, right, like I am literally the national average size, right, which is not as included as it should be, right? I'm fat, but I also recognize I'm a small fat in some ways, right? Which that term, you know, is interesting. We'll probably talk about that. Yeah, I, you know, separate um, but that's one of the things, right, where it's like I'm oppressed in this way, but also hold some privilege in this way, right? I'm right there in that area and it's still just absolutely horrible. Right? And the way people will masculinize my body. And especially as a black fat femme. Oh, forget about it. Absolutely forget about it. I cannot... There are some horrible, horrible stories just swirling in my brain, right? That's not even worth repeating. Because it's just the way people will masculinize fat bodies, black bodies. Like, even if you're wearing a full situation, it boils my blood, honestly. It's horrible out here. (laughs) Shit burns my biscuit. Purr. (laughs) I think that it's interesting, too, the fact that as people who, you know, like, to be real, like, can move through the world holding the positionality of woman, Mm -hmm. right, of black woman specifically, we experience the masculinizing effects of being fat. I feel like it's interesting to also think about how, like, people who hold the positionality of man, like, it's so interesting that being fat almost feminizes them yeah right so it's like you cannot win yeah we cannot win honestly and just by virtue of being fat people will just misclassify you entirely yeah and it plays into gender as well too in the fact that in my journey my gender journey figuring out how i want to express myself right and sometimes i'm like a little lace front beard would be cute maybe i could pull off a white rib tank top right Mm -hmm. and like i Part of me is curious about exploring that, but the fact that I can go out in a full-on femme experience, right, and still get just horrible, shady, despicable comments made at me. It's just like, dang, it makes me not even want to explore my own gender that much. Like, because I don't want to get masculinized in a way that doesn't feel full of agency, right? But the fact that it's already happening to me makes it so hard to want to lean into any times I do want to play with that. And it's just, it's just not... It's not right on any level. Yeah, it's not. Especially since I've always longed for the model cute look. Mm. You know, I've always wished that I could be model cute, quote unquote. Mm. That like wearing just a tank top and jeans and a 
right messy ponytail and just looking like you are casually put together yeah that's something that seems like it's almost reserved for straight sized people absolutely and that's just not even femme or masculine but just androgyny straight up neutral gets masculinized on fat bodies Mm -hmm. like it's so and that's the other thing too right the fact that in a fat body everything's very binary right a lot of non-binary representation like i know people have talked about at being thin and white and able-bodied, right? So the fact that in a fat body, every choice you make is a choice that's being read either this or that. Very rarely do we get read as non-binary because everything in a fat body is just scrutinized under a microscope. Incredibly. It's absolutely baffling. Yeah, I, I think that it'll be interesting to explore that further because I feel like we definitely have a lot more to say about the specific (laughs) fat-femme intersection, but it's just, I think it's going to be such a big part of our podcast moving forward, you know? It's, it's gotta have its own, like, special, like, (laughs) I'm so excited to share this descent into villainy through this podcast, honestly, from the media that inspires me to choose villainy to the origin stories that shape me and the support of other femmes who inspire me to always do even better in my villainous ways. I really appreciate you and the work you've done to help make this podcast happen and to get to share the space with you and to see where it goes. I'm also excited. I'm excited to grow this community and grow into our villainhood together. Yes.